actually be a bullet in this week. So you can follow along that way if you'd like. In 1984, an airline jet flying over Spain crashed into the side of a mountain. And investigators went to the site of the crash and they found the black box. And as they listened to the recording, they were so surprised at what they heard. You see, the computerized voice had actually warned the pilot that something was coming that was in its flight path. They heard the computerized voice say over and over, pull up, pull up. And then as they listened, they heard the pilot's voice come on. And do you know what he said? He said, shut up, amigo. You see, the pilot ignored the warning. And as a result, everybody in that plane died that day. And this is a picture of what happens when we ignore the warnings of our conscience. God has given each of us, hardwired into our nature, a conscience. And our conscience will tell us when something is coming, when we're about to do something that's dangerous. And it'll say to us, pull up, pull up. And if we listen to the voice of our conscience and we respond to that, all is well. But if we ignore it, and we go on to do that thing anyways, then maybe the next time our conscience warns us, it won't be quite as clear. It won't be quite as loud. And if we continue to walk in that same activity, eventually the conscience stops warning us altogether. You see, a seared conscience or a broken conscience is one that ceases to feel or respond to danger. A seared conscience. And today we're going to look at, in the Bible, an example of some brothers who had a seared conscience. We're continuing in our series on the life of Joseph. And you may remember a number of weeks ago we talked about how Joseph's brothers had been out in the field working. And they had looked up and they saw in the distance young Joseph, who would have been about a teenager at that time, heading towards them. And you know... Joseph really got under their skin. He was daddy's favorite. And as they saw him coming, they, they were filled with hatred. And they, the Bible says they developed of this plan to kill him. We pick up in verse uh, 23 of chapter 37 of Genesis where the Bible says, When Joseph reached his brothers, they ripped off the fancy coat he was wearing, grabbed him, and threw him in a cistern. The cistern was dry. There wasn't any water in it. And then they sat down to eat supper. Does that strike you as odd? I mean, these guys are fired up. They're ready to commit murder. Joseph's pleading for his life. Off comes the robe. And then one of them turns and says, Hey, are you guys hungry? <laughs> A seared conscience. <coughs> No feeling, no remorse. They didn't even lose their appetite over what they were about to do to Joseph. The Bible says as they were eating, a, an Egyptian caravan was passing by, and they decided, well, let's not kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. And so they did that. And then they took Joseph's coat, and they dipped it in goat's blood, and they went home to their dad, and they led their dad to believe that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And you know, I think the brothers were relieved. It was kind of like, oh, great, he's finally out of our lives. Problem solved. But of course, we know for Joseph, his problems were just beginning. 
We've seen over the past number of weeks how in the midst of this horrible injustice, God was with Joseph, giving him favor wherever he went. Lee talked about last week how God had Joseph elevated to the prime minister over Egypt. He went from slave to prime minister, second in command. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And so it would seem that Joseph had a new life. Many would call it a blessed life. He had power, he had influence, he had money, position. He had a wife and a couple kids. But what he didn't have, what I can almost bet you that he wanted in his life, were his dad and his brothers. Many of you here today know what that's like. You know the pain of being estranged from a family member or a close friend. And even though God has blessed you, even though you can see his hand on your life, that doesn't take away the longing that you have for that relationship to be restored. I know this kind of pain firsthand. And it's a strange thing to want relationship with people who grossly mistreated you. It's odd. You know, you want justice, but you want that relationship back. And it can be hard for outsiders to understand that. I remember being with my mother-in-law, and she was a spicy gal, and she, she kind of always just said whatever was on her mind. And I was with her, and I was telling her early on in my situation about what was happening, and I was distressed, and I was emotional, and, and she, she kind of played Mother Bear with me, and she said, Laurel, just forget about them. Something like that. It wasn't exactly that, but it was something like that. And I thought, oh, how I wish I could. Wouldn't it be great if we could just turn off our feelings for people just like that? Don't you sometimes wish you could just turn it off? Some people do, right? Have you ever wondered how people are able to go out and do these incredible, horrible things and then walk away as if nothing ever happened? No guilt, no remorse. They're fine. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe there's somebody in your life that has hurt you and left you wounded, and you're devastated, but you look over at them, and they're doing great. They're doing fine. And if that's the case, I think today's message is going to encourage you. Because what we're going to see today is that God cares about us. He cares about what happened, but he also cares about those who did the wrong those who hurt. And he has a plan. He is a God of restoration. And he is able to revive a seared conscience. He can go to people who don't feel danger or pain or remorse over what they've done, and he can bring that conscience back to life again. We're going to see him do this in the life of Joseph's brothers. And there's three ways he goes about this, three ways that he revives the seared conscience. And the first one is increased pressure. We see this with Joseph's brothers. Years have passed since they've sold Joseph into slavery. They've been with their dad. And a famine hit. And that famine was the increased pressure that God was going to use. And so here they were. The family is out of grain. They're facing starvation. And we're going to pick up in, in Genesis 42 where it says, When Jacob, which is Joseph's dad, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, 
Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some from us for us so that we may live and not die. Maybe you picked up on the tension in the text here. He said, why do you just stand around looking at each other? Obviously, there was an awkward moment there. And you can picture how Reuben might have glanced at Levi and how Simeon might have looked over at Judah. And surely none of them were able to look at their dad in that moment. No, Egypt was the last place these guys wanted to go. Why? Because it reminded them of Joseph. Maybe there's places you don't want to go. Maybe there's people you avoid. Maybe there's topics you absolutely won't discuss. See, God will sometimes let us use these kind of avoidance techniques for a while. But sooner or later, sooner or later, he'll come and he'll turn up the pressure in our lives and he'll allow that memory of what we've done to come to the surface. I'm reminded of an experience a friend of mine had. She had decided to go uh, volunteer at Life Services, and many of you know that's an organization that helps people who are facing unplanned pregnancies deal with that. And she was so excited to start her volunteer orientation, and I talked with her about it, and she was really excited. And, and then a couple weeks went by, and I talked to her again, and her tone had completely changed. And so we met for coffee later that day, and she sat there, and she told me that her experience at Life Services, being there, surrounded by the topic and the women, had surfaced the memory of her own abortion. She said, if you'd asked me last month if I'd ever had an abortion, I would have told you no and meant it. See, she had buried it. She had buried the memory. She had buried the shame. She had buried the guilt. And when God turned up the pressure and the memory came back to the surface, she was in crisis. She was devastated over what she had done. And there she was in God's grace, surrounded by the very people who could help her the most. She joined one of their post-abortion recovery groups, and she got the healing that she needed. She gave that shame and, and that guilt to God, and she received his forgiveness. And she tells me now that she feels so much lighter, so much freer. Some of the ways she used to cope with life are now gone. God had healed her. You know, one thing is true, and this is it, that time does not heal a guilty conscience. We may think that we've gotten away with something. We may even tell ourselves it never happened in the first place. But one day, God will apply the right kind of pressure. And this is the time to face it. This is the time to really look at it and, and let God deal with it. If you think about it this way, how can God heal you? How can he forgive you of something that you deny ever happened? Maybe there's something in your past God wants you to face. Will you? What happens if we don't? What happens if that memory comes to the surface and we just go, you know what, I just can't face it, and we push it back down all over again? Well, then God has to continue in his course of treatment. And he's going to add some painful consequences to that increased pressure. See, God's plan to revive 
A seared conscience includes <coughs> painful consequences. Now, if you're a parent, you've had to do that, right? You've, you've had to issue some painful consequences to your kids, right? Come on. I had to do this, obviously. I've got two kids. And uh, my son, Kenny, he's a good man now. What a good man. I want to put that out there. Now I want to tell you what happened. So he, he gave me such a run for my money. There was the terrible twos, the terrible threes, the terrible fours. And I remember going to kindergarten one day to pick him up, and Mrs. Edberg was there to greet me. And she said, Laurel, you should take Kenny to McDonald's. And I said, why? Well, he is such a good boy. He's so considerate and helpful. And I said, are we talking about Kenny Barr? Is that, that Kenny? And she said, yeah. You see, my experience with Kenny had been everywhere I went, people were telling me how I could do a better job parroting him. You know, it was, he was out of control. And I remember this one day, he was on his sister, pulling her hair, biting her, you name it. And I had tried everything I could to get him to stop, and nothing worked. And so, I gave him a spanking. And I set him down on the floor, and he had his little diaper, and he looked around at me, and he goes, that didn't hurt. <laughs> so discouraging. Obviously, he hadn't learned a thing. Hadn't even touched his heart. See, God's motive for painful consequences is always a heart change. He wants to mold and shape our hearts to look more like his. Well, if we go back to Joseph's brothers, when God increased the pressure in the form of the famine, and they were standing there with that dad that day, and there was that awkward silence, they could have said, Dad, the reason we're all just standing here is that it's time we knew the truth. Something happened. We did something. But they didn't, right? They didn't. They didn't do that. They went down to Egypt, and what they found waiting for them there was more than food. What they found waiting for them were some painful consequences. They got down to Egypt, and they were brought before the prime minister, a.k.a. Joseph. And the Bible says they didn't recognize him. And you think, well, that's kind of strange. But Joseph wasn't dressed as a Hebrew anymore. He, he didn't have the long robe and the, the facial hair. He was dressed like an Egyptian with a clean-shaven face and a short robe. And, of course, he'd aged 20-some years. And so they were brought before Joseph, and the brothers bowed down in respect. And Joseph, in an instant, remembered the dreams, and he knew these were his brothers. Remember the dreams. We talked about them last week. The dreams that Joseph had had as a youngster that showed him one day he would lead his brothers. And the brothers mocked him. They were horrible to him. They hated him for his dreams. And now here it was playing out right before him. And they were coming to him for help. I think in that moment that Joseph was just flooded with pain from the past. The last time he'd seen his brothers, they had tried to murder him. And so what we see is Joseph speaking harshly to his brothers. He accuses them of being spies. The Bible says that the brothers panicked. They started pleading with Joseph, and they said, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. 
Your servants are honest men. Hmm. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man who live in the land of Canaan. The youngest is one now with our father, and one is no more. So you see, Joseph learned a lot here by concealing his identity, didn't he? He learned that his brothers considered themselves honest men. That's kind of interesting. He, he also learned that his dad and his brother were still alive. And so he wants to see them. He wants to get them down to Egypt. And so he threatened his brothers, and he said, you are going to stay in prison until that brother of yours back in Canaan comes back to see me. And so Joseph puts them in prison for three days. And it's kind of interesting, as we step back, all these brothers had done was do what their dad asked, and it landed them in a dark prison cell. Does that sound like Joseph? Joseph had done what his dad asked, and it landed him in a pit. You see, what we see here is God orchestrating a replay of the last time these brothers were together. It's a mirror image. Only now the shoe is on the other foot. Right? Let's think about it. Joseph was sent on a mission by his dad. And when he got to his brothers, he was spoken harshly to. They mocked him. They teased him. Now the brothers are sent on a mission by their dad, and they're greeted by someone speaking harshly to them. The last time they'd been with Joseph, they saw him as a spy. You know, he was coming to tattle on them to daddy. And now they are being accused of being spies. The last time they were with Joseph, they had thrown him into an empty well with no way out. And now they are the ones being thrown into a prison cell with no way out. You see, until these brothers got a taste of their own medicine, until they really felt what it was like to be Joseph, they didn't feel bad about it. But now they're getting a taste of their own medicine. Now they get to see what it's like to have all that fear, that rejection, that uncertainty of the future. It was a replay. A replay. And God still does replays in our day. He's still at work that way. And, and what a replay is, it's God trying to connect a current pain that we're experiencing with a past sin. A current pain with a past sin. So maybe some of us here today are going through a hardship of some kind. And maybe we should stop and ask, gosh, could this be a consequence? Is this God's discipline? And certainly we know, and we've seen in Joseph's story, not every pain, not every hardship that comes into our life is God's discipline, for sure. But if we're in pain and the memory of a sin comes to mind and we feel guilty, that's not a bad thing, right? That means our conscience is working. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves. And since he loves every single person in this room, there's going to be times where we experience discipline. I don't like that. But it's true. As we go back to our story, Joseph left his brothers in prison for three days. And I think this gave him some time to cool off, some time to get himself together. And I say that because we find that he changes his mind a little bit. 
he was going to send eight brothers home, or eight brothers in jail and send one home. And we find that he decides to keep one brother and send the eight home to get his youngest brother Ben. Picking up in verse 20, he says, But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. And that's why this distress has come upon us. See, Joseph was standing nearby, and he got to hear, for the first time in 20-some years, his brothers express some remorse for what they had done to him. 20-some years. That's a long time. Sometimes we have to wait a long time for someone, for God to deal with a seared conscience of someone in our lives. But Joseph sees their guilt and he decides not to reveal himself. It's not over because he waits to see not only some guilt, but a changed behavior. Are they going to act on their guilt? And so what we see him do is he continues to be there for his family. He continues to help them through this crisis. And that might get lost if we just focus on the fact that he was harsh, that he inflicted painful consequences. We might be tempted to step back and look at, well, Joseph was, was really struggling with unforgiveness here. He was pretty revengeful. I mean, look what he did to his brothers. But think about it for a minute. I mean, these guys were unsafe. They had, the last time he was with them, they had tried to murder him. And they were capable of it. That when their sister got raped, they went back into the town and killed all the men there. These guys were dangerous. And Joseph had no guarantee that they had changed. And so he allows himself, he allows his God to use his position and his power to be the instrument to deliver some painful consequences to his brothers. And you know, this wasn't easy for Joseph. There was no satisfaction in this. And I say that to you because we can read several times over the next few chapters how Joseph is overcome with grief and has to pull away and cry. What he was doing was tough, really tough. I'll read you one of them, Genesis 42, 24. Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. But then he came back and he spoke to them. And he had Simeon taken from them and bound before his very eyes. <clears throat> he had to pull away. It was tough for him to do what he did. Tough love. You know, as God followers, we're not always called to be nice. Sometimes we, we get that mixed up, don't we? No, sometimes God calls us to be good and tough. Good and tough. Maybe God is asking you to do some tough things in order to help him work on somebody's conscience in your life. It could be a child who's rebelled. It could be a popular co-worker, a spouse. And you know, you find yourself counting the cost. You're thinking about the fact that, well, if I follow through with this, if I allow myself to be used in this way, things could get worse, not better. And so maybe you're even tempted to sweep it all under the carpet and look the other way. Can I encourage you for a minute? In the long run, that's not going to help a thing, is it? 
we got to keep our eyes fixed on God. we got to be obedient to what he's called us to do. I told you in the beginning of the message that I had experienced estrangement before with family. And unfortunately, I'm still in that situation. And over the last number of years, God has asked me to do some very tough things. Things I didn't want to do. And I'd love to stand here and say, there's been so much fruit. I've seen all these changes. But I haven't. And I'll tell you for me, the one thing, if this never gets resolved, if I don't get the end that I want, the one thing for me that I can hang my hat on is that I have tried my best to follow God. I've tried my best to do what he's asked me to do. Joseph's tough love didn't immediately show results. There was some waiting that happened after that. He loaded his brothers up with grain, all the grain they could carry, and he, and he sent them home. And you know, Joseph knew how long the famine was going to last, and I think he knew his brothers would have to come back for more. But the real question, the real test was, how long were they going to wait before they came back? How long were they going to leave Simeon in prison? Testing. How many of you are good test takers? You just love to take a good test. Not too many hands going up. <clears throat> yeah, tests are hard. Sometimes we don't do well on tests. And thankfully, our God knows that. Thankfully, he's not a one-and-done God. Thankfully, God is more like, if you fail one test, he stands back and says, well, let's just try that one again. And so when we fail a spiritual test, we can almost be certain that God will schedule a makeup or a do-over for us. He's so sweet that way. God's plan to revive the seared conscience will include repeated testing. Repeated testing. So, shock of all time, I have had to be disciplined by God before. And I was thinking about which one would I share. So <laughs> I'll tell you about one time. It, um, one time I went to the bank and I cashed a check. And I got a little ways away, you know what you do, and you pull out the money out of the envelope. And lo and behold, the check the gal had given me 250 extra dollars. And so I was quite pleased. Um, pretty happy. <laughs> uh, didn't have any guilt. Didn't worry about what was going to happen to that checker or she was going to get in trouble for the mistake she made. I, I spent it. I don't know what I spent it on, but it was something great, I'm sure. And since then, God has had to deal with me, of course. And so I've had this repeated test that I get to take all the time. And so it just happened a couple weeks ago. I was after work, it was one of those 90 degree days, I go to Walmart, got to get groceries, I get out to my car, I'm putting the groceries in the car, and I look down and on the bottom of the basket there's these two cases of pop. And I'm like, I don't think the checker charged me for those. And I stood there and I thought, it's Walmart, it's only $12, not a big deal, but I knew. I knew it was a test, I knew God was watching me, and I knew I needed to pass. And so I went back in, waited in line, yeah, I hadn't paid, I paid for the pop. And, you know, I was telling my girlfriend, I said, you know, this happens to me all the time. I know other people, it doesn't happen this often. 
And she said, you know what, Laura? Maybe once you return $250 worth of stuff. <laughs> and I'm thinking I'm just this close. <laughs> Repeated testing. We see God work this way with Joseph's brothers. They left Egypt and, and they had their grain. And by the way, Joseph didn't charge them a thing. He put all their money back on the top of their bags. And they went home. But they didn't go right back for, for Simeon. No, they waited. And the famine worsened. And they were out of grain again. And so they convinced their dad to let them take Benjamin and go back to Joseph. Well, once they got there, it was kind of confusing because Joseph let Simeon out of prison and then he threw a banquet in their honor. Where did the harsh treatment go? Now we're getting a banquet. Crazy. I bet these brothers thought, you know what? We're not going to have to break out that old skeleton out of the closet after all. I think we're, we're good. But God was not done. They had not passed the test. And so we see Joseph, again, being used by God. And he loads them up with grain. He puts the money on the top of each sack, except for Benjamin. On the top of Benjamin's sack, he puts a silver cup, his own personal silver cup. The whole thing was a setup. They got outside of town. Joseph had him stopped and searched. When they found the silver cup, they had Benjamin arrested and brought back to Egypt. What will the brothers do? How will they respond to the test? Will they do like they did with Joseph? Daddy's favorite is in jail. We could go home. We could make up a lie about something that happened to Benjamin. Or we could go back. We could go back and try and get it. Fortunately, what we see in this passage is they passed the test. They went back. Judah, speaking for the, all of the brothers, went before Joseph and pleaded and said, please, please don't keep Benjamin. We need to take him back to our dad. He won't survive another loss. And then he goes a step further. And he says, take me instead. Take me. Let my brother go and all take his place in prison. What did we see here? What's happened? God had transformed these men from the inside out. He had restored their seared consciences. They felt pain. They felt sorrow. So much so they were willing to make a change. They were willing to sacrifice themselves. That's a great, great thing. So encouraging. But as I think about what it took, what extreme did God have to go to, to to restore their consciences? I see that what? He had to increase their pressure in their lives. He had to add painful consequences. He had to repeatedly test them. That's sobering, isn't it? I mean, I don't think I want God to go to that extreme with me. Life is hard enough. You know what? I don't need to bring on more. I don't need it. And so it's so important, isn't it, that we keep a short account of our sins, that we get before God on a regular basis and, and we just let him examine our hearts because we serve and love a good God. 
He doesn't expect perfection. He knows we're broken. He knows we're going to make mistakes. All he wants is for us to come to him and ask, to let him know, you know what, this is what I did, Lord. Be specific. Call it what it is. And then say, God, forgive me. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. All we have to do is ask. I want to ask us all a question. When was the last time we were just still before God? When was the last time we went to him and just let him search our hearts? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. When we are before God on a regular basis and we're asking those kind of questions, that's what keeps our hearts soft and humble and open to correction. Today I'm going to give us that time to reflect. Um, Dylan and the team are going to come up here and they're going to play a song. And then we're going to get an opportunity to take communion. Jesus, when he was giving instructions to his disciples on communion, he told them it's really important before you take communion that you examine your heart and get things right with God. Don't just come up and take communion. Reflect. Ask God. Get it right. And then take the elements. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, I'm going to pray over the communion. And then I'm going to go down and they're going to play a song. And when you're ready, you just go, and there's three stations, one there, one in back, and one over there. And you take your communion, and then you're free to leave. But don't miss this opportunity, as Dylan's playing. Don't miss it. Spend some time reflecting. Father, we just come to you today. And, Lord, we want you in our lives. We want to honor you. We want to remember the sacrifice by taking communion. Lord, when we take that bread, we remember your body broken for us. When we take the wine, or the, well, it's not wine. When we take the juice, we remember your blood spilled out and shed for our sins. And so, God, we remember you today. And before we take those elements, God, would you just show us if there's anything in our past that needs to be dealt with could have been recent, could have been a long time ago, but God, just show us so that we can give that to you in exchange for your freedom and your grace. And Father, we love you, we thank you for your sacrifice, and we praise you, and all the people said, Amen. Amen.